Lord, we thank you for the word of God that you give to us. But Lord, we need your help this morning to navigate a section of it that is somewhat difficult for us to comprehend. And so Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom and discernment and ears and hearts that are um, willing to, to see what it is that is true and what is not true. Allow me as your messenger, Lord, to simply uh, proclaim uh, what you are desiring for us to see from this text. And Lord, as so often pray, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us as a result, Lord, of allowing the word of God to fashion and shape our hearts this morning? We ask now in your precious name, amen. I want to begin with a simple question this morning. How many of you in this room aspire to be counselors? So I don't have a sign-up list that I'm going to have you sign up or a clipboard that's going to go around. But the reality is, friends, everyone in this room is a counselor, whether you like it or not. Because people do come to you with problems or concerns and they ask questions, they are seeking advice, and we often give it. So we're all counselors, but the real question is, what kind of counselors are we? Are we giving the counsel that comes from the world of human thinking? Are we giving counsel that comes from the pages of God's word? Or are we doing a little of both? Mingling the language of biblical truth with the language of humanity and do we even have discernment to know one from the other? Well, we come to a section in God's word that is known for its counseling. If you remember, Job now has three sympathetic friends that are coming to console him, to comfort him, to, to bring their, their hearts of compassion to him in his Plight. He's lost all of his possessions. He's lost his children. He's lost his physical health in excruciating pain. He's alone and ostracized. And what Job and his friends don't know that we know is that there is something that has happened in heaven where, where God, the creator of the universe, has been interacting with Satan and God has been presenting Job as one who is blameless, who's upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan seeks to challenge that. And so God loosens the chain a little bit. And allows Satan to inflict some things on him. So God is the one who, is, who has allowed this to happen. But more than that, he's the one that initiated it. But it's Satan who is actually doing it and wants to do these things to Job. And so in chapter 3, last week, we, we listened to Job cry out in anguish. He cursed the day of his birth and the, the, the moment of his conception. He lamented that he didn't die stillborn or right after birth. And he questions the point of giving someone life only to end with such tragic suffering. How unjust is that? And so Job's wor words are shrieks of anguish. 
Words of grief expressed at no one in particular. But it's logical to conclude that some people are listening. Certainly God is listening. But if you remember, Job's three friends have been sitting with him in the ash heap for seven days. And Job may not have been speaking to them or to God, but they are hearing his cries. So we enter now this section known as the debate. It begins here with chapter 4 and will end in chapter 24. Where all these three friends will interact with Job. There'll be three cycles of speeches that take place. And if you remember, I gave you this handout a few weeks ago that was an outline of the book. You can just see how this just, just unfolds. Eliphaz speaks, Bildad speaks, Zophar speaks, and after each of those speeches, Job then responds. And so there's just three waves of these encounters or interactions with Job. And in these speeches, we will discover the kind of advice or wisdom offered to Job that misses the mark and falls short of truthfulness. Now, each of these speeches will be for us opportunities to assess how the, the thinking of mankind can get intermingled with the truth of God's word and God's ways. It will reveal for us how we are easily affected and shaped to think and give advice that society, religion, and the church is comfortable with, but is not a reflection of Christ and his gospel. And so as we come to this first speech from the lips of Eliphaz, we want to do something. We want to learn to be discerning of well-intended but biblically erroneous advice. Now, friends, this is something we need to learn. We need to learn to have eyes and ears that are discerning. Even as we hear well-intended counsel, well-intended advice. Because not all the counsel that we receive and not all the counsel that we give is necessarily true. And we're going to approach our time this morning under three headings. First of all, we're going to look at the speaker briefly. We're going to spend a good bit of time on the sermon that Eliphaz preaches. And then we're going to pause and struggle a little bit with the implications that come out of Eliphaz's sermon, where this mingling of truth and error takes place. So let's begin here by just considering, first of all, the speaker and of course, he is Eliphaz, and he seems to be the leader of the group. Uh, in your Bibles, turn to chapter 42 and verse 7 of Job. This is at the end of Job, and we need to see here that as the book comes to an end and Job has finally been reconciled to God, God speaks, and he speaks to the three friends, but he speaks to Eliphaz. He says, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now my point, first of all here, is it seems that Eliphaz is the leader of these friends. All right? There may be three friends, but oftentimes you have a leader among those friends. 
And God directs his attention to Eliphaz. There's something here about him going first every time. There's also something about him receiving that instruction from God. Secondly, Eliphaz speaks with respect and genuine care. He's not a a man coming with kind of this bold, obnoxious brashness. He's coming with a kind, courteous, deferential, and sensitive uh, tone. He begins his speech in a gentle but hesitant manner. And he gives Job a positive assessment of his former life in verses 3 through 4. He affirms Job's present um, piety, or I might say godliness and integrity in verse 6. So he's attempting to get alongside Job and, and, and speak to him heart to heart, but in a shoulder to shoulder way. And as, as, as men, we have this greater ability to listen to one another shoulder to shoulder. Typically... Uh, our counterparts like to look at each other and speak heart to heart. Men are just as good with a fishing pole, you know, facing a lake, but they'll talk about deep things like that. We're just, just wired differently. And there's a sense where Eliphaz is coming alongside Job in that way. But ultimately, as we have read, Eliphaz misses the mark. And the punchline of his counsel is that he misses the mark. Now, have you ever been in a difficult situation? And some well-meaning person comes up to you and gives you advice about something you're going through, some struggle, some, some issue in your life. But as you hear their well-intended counsel, you're cringing because they really don't know that the advice that they're giving you is not helpful. It's actually missing the mark and ultimately is causing more hurt and harm than it does good because they really don't understand what it is you're actually going through. They think they do. They're well-intended. They want to help. But what they're saying isn't really helpful. Or, on the other hand, have you ever sought to come alongside someone who is struggling and give them advice, only to realize that the advice you're giving is more damaging than helpful? Or maybe you feel the pressure to give some counsel, so you open up your mouth, and what comes out is, is just not, <laughs> doesn't make any sense, and it's stuff that you're reaching for that really doesn't apply to the situation. And I think there are times where, you know, maybe, you, maybe you're at a, at a funeral, and you're, you're walking up to, to, you know, to just to say hello and to encourage the person who's lost their loved one, and you want to say something profound, and so you say something, and afterwards you're like, that was total nonsense, what did I do? Now, friends, if you're, if you're like me, you have done both of these things. You've been the recipient of well-intended advice that is wrong, and you have been the source of well-intended advice and counsel, which is erroneous and harmful. This is where we live, friends. This is part of the reason you have cell phones. It's not to play games. It's to talk with people. And a lot of that talking happens, you know, I'm going through this problem, I'm going facing this struggle, what should I do? Oh, maybe you should do such and such. And we're always giving each other counsel and advice. So if we're honest, we, we struggle in both places, enduring the well-intended but bad advice of others and giving a well-intended word that really misses the mark for that particular moment. And it may be one of the reasons why we don't give advice at all, why we just are silent rather than you know, say something that we fear will be completely off target. 
Now, as we, as we move through this sermon, I think it's important that we give Eliphaz at least the benefit of the doubt that he's trying genuinely to help Job in his situation. And with that in mind, then, we want to move to the sermon. Now, this sermon um, begins with tentative words. Look at verse 1. And Eliphaz the team and I answered and said, if one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? In other words, I want to talk with you, Job. <laughs> I want to communicate some things to you, but, but, but I want to make sure that you're ready to hear them. And he's breaking the ice, so to speak. Job has cried out to God. They've heard it, and now... Eliphaz is stepping in with some words. And if we are to summarize what Eliphaz is saying, we have a four-point sermon, which means he wasn't a Baptist because they only have three-point sermons, right? And let me give you the points, and these are in your handout, and you can follow along, okay? First point, Job, you're being inconsistent. You're being inconsistent. Secondly, Job, you're being unrealistic. Third, Job, you're being proud. Fourth, Job, you're being insubordinate. You're being inconsistent, unrealistic, proud, and insubordinate. Now, I am going to walk through this sermon. There's a sense in which I am preaching someone else's sermon today. But clearly, as we have seen, I'm preaching someone else's sermon that contains both truth and error. <laughs> and part of our job then is to try and parse out what is true and what is false. Okay? Now, let's begin then with Job, you're being inconsistent. Look at verse three through verse six. Behold, you have instructed many. You have, uh, you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling. You have made firm the feeble knees, but now, it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Now, this is a gentle confrontation that he begins with. Job, you have been greatly used by God in your life to help others. You've instructed many people. They've taken your counsel. They've taken your advice. And you have allowed them to be strengthened, to be upheld, to be made firm. But now it's your turn, and you must practice what you're preaching. Job, you've been touched by misfortune and suffering, and you're impatient, and you're dismayed. Don't you believe the things that you have taught others? Aren't you willing to take your own advice? Listen, Job, let me remind you of a couple of very important truths. Reverent piety ensures confidence and security. In other words, a righteous walk with God will result in God's blessing. So, the fact that you fear God should give you confidence. The fact that you are a man of integrity in living your life should bring you hope. So what gives Job? Why so much wailing about dying and not being born? Why so many questions? But Eliphaz is getting at what we would call 
religious morality. In other words, God has laws, he has standards of behavior, he has expectations about how we are to speak and to live and to obey him. Fear God in his ways, and you can be confident. Be a person of integrity, and you can be sure that God is going to bring you hope. So if you haven't broken any commands, Job, if you've been fearing God by keeping his laws, you should be confident, you should have hope. And so he's saying, Job, you and I know that God rewards the pious, that means godly, someone who's pursuing God, the pious people with blessing. This is how the world works. There is moral order. God gives good things to good people. And of course, what we are privileged to see is that at the beginning of this book in the heavenly realm... It is made clear not just by God, but also the narrator, that it is not Job's sin that brings about his calamity. But Eliphaz is emphasizing here that this kind of stuff happens to people who are sinful. There's an order. The problem with what Eliphaz is saying here is that it's all external. He's preaching an if-you-keep-the-rules kind of religion that is only concerned about the external and obedience to the law, kind of these external kind of obedience to the law, the form of things. So yes, Job should feel confident because he fears God. Yes, Job should have hope because of his integrity. But the fact is, he doesn't feel confident and he doesn't have hope. And he doesn't believe that he's done anything to deserve the suffering that he's going through. In other words, he's connecting dots, Eliphaz is, but Job is saying, you're missing the point because I haven't done anything. So Eliphaz is, is trying to preach to him, trying to, trying to say something to him to be helpful, but if Job hasn't sinned, this doesn't make any sense. So Job, why all this cursing the day of your birth? You're being inconsistent. Practice what you preach. You're a good man, and God will bring blessing to you to be sure. And then he comes with a proposition. This is the key truth that he's he's moving to in this section of Scripture. He says in verse 7, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? In other words, innocent people don't perish. Innocent people are not cut off. Look at your situation, Job. You're struggling. But you're not dead yet. But you're struggling. Now, Eliphaz isn't saying the righteous will never suffer, but that the righteous will never wholly perish. He's saying the righteous do not die prematurely. Job is not dead. Ergo, he is among the righteous and can afford some hope. The problem here is is that this is an unfalsifiable claim. You say, what is all that about? Let me try and explain that. If you believe that every instance of premature death is proof of the wickedness of the victim, then it only serves to support the validity of the premise that if you are still alive, you must be righteous. Right? But it's unfalsifiable. I mean, in other words, you can't say, oh, let me talk to that person that died prematurely to find out from them if... You don't have anything. 
And so he's saying the fact that you're still alive must mean that you're righteous, but it must mean you're righteous and you've committed some sin. You remember what Job was saying in chapter 3, how he numbered himself among those who long for, je- for death, who rejoice exceedingly when they find the grave. Add to that the implicit reality now that the reason Job's children are dead is because of some wickedness in them. And you can see how, how this is hurtful to him as a father. Because if you remember, the, the emphasis in the beginning of the book is that Job was making sure that if there's any issue there, he was coming to God. He was trying to make sure that a sacrifice and atonement was made for them. So Eliphaz doesn't mean for his words to cause distress. They're meant to be uh, meant kindly, but the significance of his, of his words do have a logical um, bearing, a logical outflow. And then he continues on with an observation from his own personal eyewitness experience. Verse, uh, verse 8, as I've seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and the blast of his anger they're consumed. So I've observed, Elphaz says, that when people invest in bad things in their lives, they get bad stuff out, right? When they plow iniquity, they sow trouble. When they reap uh, iniquity and trouble as a result of what they've been plowing and sowing. That is the way with moral actions. We will reap what we sow. Now, we need to step back and say there is a principle in Scripture reinforced by Jesus and the Apostle Paul that says whatsoever man sows, that will he also reap. Okay. But is that talking here about sin and what God chooses to do with a person? So you could say on the front end, certainly there are, there are consequences for actions that you can connect the dots to. You can sow something and you can reap a consequence. But that doesn't necessarily mean then, at now as we move along, you say, well, I'm experiencing this calamity, therefore, there must be something I sowed back here that causes this consequence or this calamity. You see where this is going. It is true that what you sow, you're gonna reap, but it is not true to say, If you're experiencing calamity, that means that you've sown something back here. The two are not the same. And this is what Eliphaz is emphasizing here. What Eliphaz misses is that the harvest, the harvest is at the end of the age and not till then. When you sow your commitment to God, when you come to God and you embrace Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have the certainty of the prospect of heaven. You have future realities, future promises, future securities that you long for, but they're not necessarily present realities. You live in light of those. They're promises that God has, has given you. And what he's doing here is he's overreaching in his eschatology and he's applying those things that are promises back to Job's life right now. What Eliphaz says is that God is angry with sinners. He's flaring his nostrils, breathing out a gale of angry judgment on the wicked so that they perish and are consumed. And so, Job, you need to to make sure that you are uh, consistent rather than being inconsistent. And he brings now this, this final metaphor. Just picture this. 
It's a picture of, of wickedness, predatory wickedness, and it has three images. Verse 10, the roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken, the strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. The issue here is not the fierceness of the lions. The issue here is the fact that any of these fierce animals may at any time perish because of lack of prey. It is the unforeseeable calamity that can strike at any moment. And so Eliphaz is saying, Job, there is a moral order of things. You know it, and I have observed it. For many years, you are being inconsistent. Allow the moral order to be what you're plugging yourself into. The reason that you're here is because you've done something, but at the same time, you're not dead yet, so there may still be hope for you. All right? That's the first section. Job, you're being inconsistent. Now, Job, you're being unrealistic. Job, you're being unrealistic. There's a shift in what Eliphaz says, and it's a rather strange shift. It's an appeal to a dream he had that he sees as a source of revelation. Look at verse 12. Now, a word was brought to me stealthily. Notice the top and tail here, by the way. There's a word that was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid the thoughts from visions of the night, and uh, when deep sleep falls on men, dream, uh, dread came to me in trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit guided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. So it begins with, a word was brought to me stealthily, and it ends with, I heard a voice. Now, the point of all of this is not just to focus on this, the, the, the mysterious experiential side, it's to get to the content of what that voice is saying, but we do need to pause and to say that Job now is basing what he's about to say as being authoritative and coming from this mystical experience that he had, this vision in the night. So it seems to be a nightmare, some kind of a deep sleep, it was frightening, it was dreadful, it left him trembling and then something like a breath, a wind passed by his face. It was terrifying. It was certainly something supernatural is what he's saying. Now, unlike the oracles of God, where God speaks to a prophet in a dream, and it's thus says the Lord, and it's clearly identified that it is God, the creator of the universe, that is speaking, what we have here is kind of a very fuzzy... Um, uh, lacking any kind of source or clarity in the, the conclusion here. So Eliphaz is using this vision experience as an authoritative word for Job to listen to. Eliphaz has had this personal revelation from, from God, so he thinks, for Job, and that's the implication. But there's no indication in the text or by the narrator that it is actually God who is intervening there. And you'll find when these things happen, and it is truly God, that there's somewhere in the text that's going to help you know this is God speaking. And now we get to the punchline, the word of wisdom from this voice in the terrifying night. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, you have to ask yourself, with all this buildup of this experience and this night and these terrors and this panic and this voice and this word... What comes out of the mouth of that apparition is, can mortal man be right 
before God. I mean, this is not a word for Job. This is just general truth. This is, this is just kind of a general truth for mankind. This is not some special revelation from God for Eliphaz to give to Job that is specific for Job. This is, can a mortal man be in the right before God? And the implication there is no. Can a man be pure before his maker? The answer is no, you can't. Is it possible for a mortal man to stand pure and clean before God? The answer is no, he cannot. No man can claim that. And friends, what Eliphaz is unwittingly doing is aligning himself not with God, but with Satan. I want you to think through this now. It is God who identifies Job as blameless, full of integrity, fearing God and turning away from evil, but it's Satan that doesn't buy that. He can't see how a sacrifice can bring a sinful man into a right standing with God. So what comes from the spirit in the night is not from God at all, but from Satan, the accuser of the brethren, but it is given voice by a caring, comforting, and sympathizing friend. Eliphaz continues. Even in his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in the houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like a moth. He's saying if the supernatural beings in the universe that God has created, the angels, are not clean in God's, eye, God's sight, how much more than we who are mortals who have houses of clay, bodies, who are fragile and chained, how much more then um, are we going to be crushed? Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone uh, regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and without wisdom? I love that, that image here, that tent cord. You know, you, you guys have been camping before and you know, you're walking around and all of a sudden, you know, you, you trip over the, the rope that has the, the little peg in the ground and the whole thing, you know, comes to the ground. That's the image here. This is what life is like. It's fragile. It just takes someone to come and trip up. And when that happens, we go back to the dust. Calamity comes. So, Job, stop being so unrealistic. You are mortal. God is immortal. Your life is fragile, and things can come crashing down at any time. And that is just the way of things, Job. You may not be able to understand. So now Eliphaz continues by asking the question, is there any supernatural heavenly being who will mediate between unclean dust mortals and the immortal God? Look at verse 1 now of chapter 5, because this all flows together. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which... Of the holy ones will you turn? In other words, according to Eliphaz, there isn't anyone to turn to. The realm of heaven is simply beyond your grasp. Of course, we want to jump into this dialogue and say, oh, but there is a holy one that we can turn to. There is a mediator who will answer you. He is far off in the distant future, but he is the fulfillment of these sacrifices, Job, that you have been giving on behalf of your children. He is listening. He answers. He, you can turn to him. So Eliphaz continues by referencing an illustration from his own experiences of the fool or the simple. And, and basically, it's the same thing that happens here. When, when a fool is given money, lots and lots of money, 
And he flourishes. He's successful. The idea is it takes root. He cannot handle what he has. And so he squanders his money. It's cursed. He may have built or purchased a nice building, and initially he has all this stuff, but sooner or later, it is all gone because that fool has no capacity to handle that kind of money. And friends, we see that in the world, don't we? We see that with professional athletes who are given hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, and were given that a number of years ago, and they, you know, they could have... They could have supported lots of families, and today they have nothing because they were living for the moment. And the evidence is that they were fools with what they had. They didn't have the capacity or the ability to restrain themselves and to, to put their money to good use. This is true also of people who win the lottery. You can read up about this. People get all this money, and because they get this money, they just loosen up on any kind of restraint. And that just this money just goes right through their pockets. They're fools. And it's the hungry and the thirsty that end up being like vultures that descend and devour what the fool has had. So simply stated, what's going on here is the fruits of the fool's labors are enjoyed by others, and his children are left in want. So Eliphaz continues, for affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Eliphaz is saying, Job, listen to me. It's not, that the ground, it's not the ground's fault that trouble and affliction come. Man brings about his own problems. You see, just like these sparks from, from the fire always defy gravity and they're moving upward, so man finds himself in trouble. Trouble with one another, trouble with God. So Job, stop being unrealistic. Stop thinking above your station Stop thinking that you are somehow in the right or pure before God. Stop thinking that you are not responsible for the trouble that you find yourself in. Stop being inconsistent. Stop being unrealistic. Let's move on to this next one, verses 8 through 16. Now he comes alongside Job, and he says, Ask for me, I would seek God, and to God would I commit my cause. And ultimately he's going to say, Job, you're being proud. And he presents God as an amazing God who does marvelous things. Look how he describes him. Verse 9, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. So what does this amazing God do? Verses 10 through 14 describe that for us. He saturates the earth with rain so crops can grow. He elevates the lowly. And those that mourn, he frustrates the devices of the crafty. He ensnares the wickedly wise with their crafty schemes. He will bring about their just consequences. So Job, let me remind you what God is like. God is good to provide that rain. He is powerful to frustrate the crafty. He is just to allow the wicked to meet their darkness. But not only that... He is a compassionate God. He cares about the needy who have been victims of slander and gossip. He is faith, a faithful God. He gives hope to the poor who have suffered injustice. That's what he says in verses 15 and 16. And Eliphaz is saying here, he is a good God and you should turn to him. He is a, a marvelous God and I would commit my cause to him. But he, he is also a God beyond your understanding. He does many things you cannot comprehend. Again, verse 9, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? 
So Job, Job, stop trying to be too clever for your own good. Stop thinking you can be wiser than God. Stop being too proud to admit that you have sinned. Instead, God reaches down to help the needy, the humble, and not the proud. He elevates those lowly people. So don't be proud. Instead, be humble. So Job, you're inconsistent, you're unrealistic, you're proud. And the final point of his sermon here is, Job, you're, you're being insubordinate. And, and here what he does is he begins by talking about God as, as this, this father who disciplines his children. It's the same idea. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For his wounds, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters but his hands heal. The blessing pronounced by Eliphaz here is not unique to this text, is it? We find it in other places in Scripture. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 will be an example. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 would be another. But let me read Proverbs. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him, uh, him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. So God's discipline is a discipline because he loves those who are his and it is for their good. So, Job, what you have been experiencing, what you are experiencing, is simply the loving hand of God's discipline on your life. Embrace it for what it is. Submit yourself to it. And allow it then to be an opportunity for you to, to find what it is that you have done and then be reconciled to God. And you'll be blessed, you'll be happy if you hear what I'm telling you for your own good. But then he says, let me remind you that God will deliver you from, from the troubles you are facing. Look at verse 19. He will deliver you for, from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. Now you would expect then a list of six things or seven things. This is a rhetorical device that is simply saying there is no trouble from which the Almighty will not deliver you. When it's used, sometimes it includes a list of things, and sometimes it doesn't. Right? The point is to make an emphasis here that God does deliver. Here, we only have a partial listening. He can deliver you from death, from the power of the sword, from the lash of the tongue, from fear or, or from destruction, that's what God does. He delivers. This is what he did with Lot in the cave while Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. This is what God did with Noah in the ark. He delivers people out of the calamity. And notice the words of deliverance that are, are used in these verses. He will redeem you. He will hide you. You will not fear. Now, see, these are, these are truths that he's trying to convey to Job to help him in his particular situation. But how can Job accept Eliphaz's encouragement to submit to God's chastening hand when he is convinced that he is a man of integrity? To be chastened for doing what is right isn't comforting, it's injustice. So Eliphaz is trying to help by bringing counsel and pointing out there must be sin here. The sin is what you need to get to. That's what you need to unearth. And Job is saying, listen, you're missing it. There is no sin here. This has just happened to me. Eliphaz is trying to be helpful. But he presses on with a beautiful picture. 
of the blessing of God. At destruction and famine you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. Because of God's blessing, you will laugh at natural disaster, destruction and famine. You will not fear the beasts of the earth. In other words, you will be in perfect harmony with nature. You know, this, is not, this is not Pastor Rod somehow moving up to northern California on the west coast there and kind of getting in touch with you know, this new age thing. But there is something true that God promises about a future kingdom. And listen to what he says next. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. Listen, the idea of the stones in the ground is a way of speaking about agricultural problems. You don't want stones in the ground. In fact, in, in the Old Testament, there's stories of, of armies that came in and threw stones on the ground to stop the agriculture from actually being, being productive. Right, the beast of the field is a way of, of speaking about problems, keeping domestic animals. The beasts of the field are, are away. They don't prey on yours. Verse 24, you shall know that your tent is at peace. Your home is at peace. Your body is at peace. And you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many. Your descendants is grass of the earth. You shall come to the grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. So your home, your, your farm, your body will all be at peace. Now, Job must be shifting uncomfortably because he is not at peace. And so all this counsel, all this advice is hopeful thinking, but it's based on a premise that is not correct. Eliphaz is getting his eschatology mixed up. There are descriptions of life in the future kingdom uh, say so these are descriptions of life in the future kingdom and are being applied to the here and now. But Eliphaz is seeking to encourage his friend. And we've got to give him that. He cares about him. He's coming compassionately. And so he says in closing, Behold, this we've searched out. And it's true. Hear and know it for your good. Now, did you catch this? I don't know if you did. Verse 27. He says, he says, this is what I would do if I were, were you. That's what he said earlier. And now at the end here, he says, this is what we have searched out, and it's true. In other words, I've come to this conclusion, but now this is actually the conclusion of everyone, including you. And you know it to be true. So believe it. Now, friends, just walking through the sermon, I'm trying to give you kind of the, the high points of, of what what Eliphaz is saying to Job, I would encourage you to go back and read it for yourself and see it under these headings. But Job, you're being inconsistent. Practice what you preach. You're being unrealistic. You recognize that these things happen to people and just recognize that this is just part of the world, part of God's creation. You're being too proud. You need to be humble instead, Job. And finally, you are being insubordinate. Submit yourself to God. Turn to him. Lean on him. And here's the thing. I think Job is saying, I'm doing that. But if I'm leaning on God, guess what? I'm leaning on him not for the same reason that you're saying I need to lean on him because there is no sin here that is the cause of this. Now remember, God has already said at the end of his book to help us understand what's going on here that what Eliphaz is saying is not accurate, is not true. And so we've got to realize that there's a problem with his talk, there's a problem with his sermon. So now let's move from the sermon to what I'm calling the struggle. 
Truth mixed with error is not truth, is it? No matter how you slice it, but Eliphaz is confident that his version of the truth is actually the truth. And Job, if he's going to learn anything, he will need to listen to what Eliphaz is saying and accept the advice given to him by this sympathetic, caring, and comforting friend. But just because someone is sympathetic, caring, and seeking to bring comfort doesn't mean that what they're ultimately saying in their advice is helpful, right, or true. Okay? The struggle in this first speech by Eliphaz is that there is much that Eliphaz says is true. He does say a lot of good things that are orthodox things about God. Now get this, even the Apostle Paul quotes from this speech. 1 Corinthians 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. That is taken from this text. How can Paul quote something from a man, ultimately, who is identified as someone who is not bringing the truth? Because it's not all false. There is truth contained in what he's saying. Get that? But now we've got to be careful. How do you discern between what's false and what's true? See, this is one of the many problems that we have. There are many statements that Eliphaz and his friends will say that are true. The problem is the truths are mixed with error, and so ultimately he misses the mark. So I want to give you five cautions that flow out of this text. I'll do my best to try and connect them, um, and I hope these are helpful for you. So this is kind of reflecting now on what Eliphaz has said. Number one, be careful that you don't equate your subjective experiences with the truth of God's revealed word. Eliphaz had a dream, a night vision that he was convinced was true. Certainly it was mysterious to the point that he was fearful, but there's no connection of his experience with the actual revelation of God. Still, much of Eliphaz's understanding comes by virtue of his personal experience through a dream. So this dream then is the lens through which he now gives, uh, he, he views the world, I should say, and he's convinced that his dream is right and that Job should listen to what he has learned through that revelation in that dream. Today's Christian culture is scandalized with the sensational and subjective experiences of people telling their stories. This has happened so much that it's become its own genre of literature known as heavenly tourism literature. The more recent The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven bestseller book is just one example of the danger of this kind of sentimentality. It's a story about a boy who died and went to heaven, and when the boy comes back, he wakes up, he tells his dad, here's what happened, here's what I saw. His dad wrote down all the things. It ends up becoming a book. The problem is the boy was very, very young, and the mom and the dad separated, and the dad ended up promoting the book, completely in his name. The book became a movie. The son recants 
what he said and said, you know what, I, I simply made this up. Here's what he says in his, his open letter. I did not die. This is when he was 16. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from the lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. Now, friends, you can't make this stuff up. The boy's last name is Malarkey. But the father would not stop the promotion of this book and this movie. It now had become a money-making scheme. And actually, the boy and his mom went to court for many years to stop this story going out because they said it's not true. As a result of this scandal, the abundance of books being published under this heavenly tourism genre by people, I say, within the Christian umbrella, many Christian retailers like Lifeway are now refusing to sell any book in that genre. This is such a problem within Christianity. Now, friends, the simple fact that this book was taken seriously, put into print, and eventually made into a movie should tell us something about the biblical discernment of a segment of American Christianity. So be careful that you don't equate your subjective experiences with the truth of God's revealed word. Friends, this is a serious problem within Christianity. In many cases, more emphasis is put on the subjective experiences that people have than on the power of the word of God itself. And when that is done, in their minds, the word of God is not sufficient. When someone says, but God told me, who can argue with that? Well, God apparently told you. I jokingly say, you know, in my office, I have a bat phone to God. You know what I'm talking about. No, I don't. But that's sometimes what we want, isn't it? We want to be able to pick up the bat phone and say, God, here's my problem. What should I do? You know, follow the sign. Okay, so now we're out following the sign. That's not how it works. God has given us his word more sure. It's been breathed out by him. And his Holy Spirit is at work through the word. When people say, well, in more subtle ways, I've prayed about it and I think that we should do X, Y, Z. Simply praying about it and having a subjective feeling does not necessarily mean that what you're choosing to do is right. But we, we allow these subjective experiences to be the lens by which we determine what we are to do. And friends, that is not necessarily what is true. And what happens when people make these statements, God told me or I've prayed about and I know that it's God's will, it binds everybody. Not just the person who claims to have received the special revelation from God. If God has revealed it to them, it becomes impossible to ask questions which imply any doubt about their course of actions. If I, if I question your, your dream or extra biblical revelation, then it's like, oh, you're not a believer. You don't really trust God. You don't believe what God says. Sorry for being the bad guy here. But this is what we have with Eliphaz. I've got this dream. I've got this vision. Now let me tell you what it says. Friends, dreams are powerful at times. You agree with that? You ever 
had a dream that you're just, I mean, it's, it's this story that's going on in your head as you're sleeping and, and your whole body's into it and it's just intense and it involves people that you know and horrible things are happening or things that are tense and you wake up and you still have the, the kind of plot line in your head and some of the pictures of it and your body feels still like you're in the dream and, and you're now awake and you're, you're on your way to, to get up out of your bed and go to the kitchen and you're kind of in a fog of what is real. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, maybe I'm just the crazy guy here, right? This is how dreams are. They are intense, but they are not real. They're dreams. And although you may have had a powerful dream, God has not revealed his specific will to you through that dream. Now, I do believe that God can use the content of our dreams providentially in the natural course of our lives, but he's not revealing to us specific instructions for guidance through that dream. Now, let me just clarify what I'm saying here. When I say he uses our dreams providentially, I mean to say that the experience in that dream might cause me to reflect on some areas of my life. Just like if I read a book and I'm like, wow, this book was powerful. It has some implication. Or if I watch a movie and you're at the end of the movie, you're like, you know, it has some implication. You wake up having a dream where your family is in some kind of a mess. Maybe there's been an accident and there's hospitals involved and you wake up and you realize, oh, it's just a dream. God can providentially use that to say, I'm going to go hug my kids. Okay? You see what I'm saying? God can use it in that sense. But be careful that you're not waking up in the morning trying to write all your dreams out and trying to make sure I have them all down because God is speaking to me through it. No, he's not. He has given you his word more sure. And it's the word of God is the means by which God teaches and guides us by virtue of his Holy Spirit. The problem is we don't want to be Bible people oftentimes. We want to be subjective, sentimental people. And so we want to learn and we want to lean to those particular things. So friends, be careful that you don't equate your subjective experiences with the truth of God's word. Secondly, be careful that you don't overreach with the promises God gives you about his future kingdom. Let me explain that. This is what Eliphaz was saying and emphasizing would happen to Job. But not in a future kingdom, but now here on this earth. And friends, our, our culture is played with this kind of teaching. And this is what happens with the prosperity gospel in particular. Our pastors and teachers of God's word say things that are true, but they also misuse and misapply God's promises given to us about our future kingdom as if those promises and realities are present now. If you're a child of God, you're saved but you're not fully saved. And what I mean by that is not that you, you're not a believer. I'm saying there is still a salvation yet to come, and it's a salvation out of this world into a place called heaven, ultimately into his kingdom. It is completed when we all gather together as we sang the song today, let your kingdom come. That's what we long for. It's in that kind of context where this world and how we know it will be changed. The lion will lie down with the lamb. It's going to be completely different. This past week, as we were going through our men's Bible study, one of the things that the author of this book 
emphasizes that we tend to approach the Beatitudes as commands to follow rather than declarations of good news about the kingdom. In other words, we, we look at the poor in spirit and we look at the, 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 those who mourn and, and the meek and, and those who hunger and we're saying, oh, I've got to be poor in spirit. Oh, I've got to be mournful. Oh, I've got to be meek as if those are the things I need to do in order to get into the kingdom. And what he's saying is, no, 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 this is what the kingdom looks like. These are the people for whom the kingdom, it, this is who, for, oh, I say that. the kingdom is for these people, these kinds of people, those who are mournful, those who are poor in spirit, et cetera, et cetera. Friends, we must do away with embracing promises that are truly not meant uh, not meant for us, but we must not do away with embracing promises that are truly meant for us. And we need to be discerning in how we do that. And it requires um, a discernment and the willingness to do the hard work of understanding a text in its context. Now, let me just give you one classic example of what I'm talking about, okay? And, and if, this is, if this is your life's verse, just love me still, okay? All right? The, 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 the classic example promoted by the prosperity preachers is Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, if you come to this passage and you just pick up this text and you say, ah, this text is for me, I'm going to make it for me, and I'm going to say, okay, God knows the plans I have for you. God has plans for me. All right, God, oh, these plans for, for welfare and not for evil. Oh, he's, he has plans are good. They're not for evil. Okay, and to give you a future and a hope. Okay, so I have a future and I have a God, thank you for giving me all these plans. The problem is God did not write that for you. He wrote that to his children who were being marched away in destruction, in captivity to Babylon. They have received the brunt of God's judgment for their rebellion and their sin. And in the midst of all of his, his explaining to them of the things that they would have to suffer, he brings in this glimmer of hope to them and says, For I know the plans I have for you as you're walking away into captivity, captive. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and to give you hope. This promise was for them. It was not for you. Problem is, we love to pull verses out of scripture and claim them for ourselves. And so we apply things to ourselves that we have no business applying to ourselves. We overreach with scripture. We overreach with the promises of God. And in particular, with the future kingdom promises. Next one. Be careful that you don't obey God simply for the blessings he gives. Now certainly God does give blessings, right? We know that. But is that why we live our lives to please him? We seek to please him, hopefully, because we who were once enemies have been welcomed into his family. I just think about that paradigm, enemies, family. We seek to please him because we have been rescued out of darkness into marvelous light. We seek to please him because he is worthy of our delight and joy. So yes, there'll be blessings in heaven. Yes, there are blessings and benefits that come with our new life in Christ now. Now. 
But those benefits are now new avenues and vehicles to delight in him more. So Eliphaz encourages Job to fear God for exactly the reason Satan said Job had always feared God. For the rewards of obedience and worship rather than because God is God. If you remember chapter 1, that is what Satan is saying. The reason he is living this way is because of all that you bless him with. That is the voice of Satan coming through the advice of a loving, caring friend. And how do we know that that statement is true or what we're saying here is true? Because at the end of the book, Job does turn to God and repents for how he has wrestled with God in the ash heap of his suffering. And in the end, yes, Job is blessed abundantly, but hear this, he repents as he realizes who God is, that God is God. He is not expecting anything from God. He's not hoping anything from God except reconciliation and restoration. It is God by virtue of his will and his providence that then after that gives him blessing, heat upon blessing. He didn't pursue God to get the blessing. The blessing came as a result of being united with God. Is God enough? Or is he simply a means to your selfish end. All I have is Christ and all these other things that I want to. Or is it all I have is Christ? A song that we sing. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Oh, yes, yes, yes. He'll give you the desires of my heart. The problem is, what happens when you delight in the Lord is this. If you truly delight in the Lord, he changes you. And when you delight in the Lord and he changes you, he not only changes you, he changes your desires. And your desires now are not your selfish desires that you had before when you came to God. They are desires that God has fashioned shaped in you so that your new desires are actually his desires that are being fleshed out. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. We just got to get our perspectives right, God. God is the point, not what I get because of God. Four, be careful that you don't settle for a religious orthodoxy and morality that is void of the gospel. Eliphaz preaches a picture of God that is orthodox. He paints God as, as being beautiful as being amazing, as magnificent. But he's also saying here that we then should be obedient to him, and if we are obedient to him, then we can expect a life of peace and goodness and blessing, and if we're not obedient, then we can expect to reap what we sow. But religious orthodoxy and morality is what we have when we leave out the gospel. We have religion, under the umbrella of Christianity, and we have rules, we have expectations, we have patterns of behavior that we've got to conform to, and we can do all that without the gospel. 
The scripture is clear. We read it as we began today. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What any and every person who is suffering ultimately needs is to have their suffering understood in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the lens of that gospel. He knows what it means to truly suffer, doesn't he? He knows what it's like to be accused of things that he has not done. He knows what it's like to endure words that completely miss the mark and misrepresent him. And he is the only one who can make sense of it all. Listen, for the unbeliever, every suffering is a foretaste of final judgment and a warning of the horrors of hell to which they're going to go if they do not repent. What about the believer? Well, all the sins of the believer have been borne by Christ our Savior. Do you believe that? He has paid the penalty and has borne the wrath of the Father. Past, present, future sins, conscious and unconscious sins. It follows, therefore, that no suffering of believers can possibly be punished, uh, be punishment for their sins. Why? Because Christ has borne that punishment. So we should not be saying in our lives, this is happening unless it's clearly connected to some kind of you know, consequence, action, reaction thing. But this calamity has come because of some sin in my life. That is so far from the scripture. Jesus paid for your sin. Your suffering is not more payment for that sin. So why do Christians suffer? It's not for their sin. It's because God in his redemptive plan is using that suffering to bring the gospel to a needy world. 2 Timothy 2.10 says this. Paul says, I endure everything, just in the context there, he's talking about suffering, for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Eliphaz is like a counselor who misses the mark. He asserts lots of general things that are true. People do reap what they sow. Human beings are not always right before pure, uh, pure, uh, pure before God. People should seek God. God does discipline his people. The question is whether these are good explanations of Job's suffering or not. The problem with Eliphaz is not his theology. Rather, the problem is the application of that theology to Job's situation. He, misses, he misuses Proverbs and misapplies them. So friends, the, the point here is we can know lots of good things about God, about his word, but we can misapply them in that particular situation. And we need to learn and start growing to make sure that we're aware of those things. One last thing here as we finish up these five struggles. Be careful that your love of a robust theology doesn't eclipse your compassion for others. My friends, there's a principle that says, always be careful to argue from silence. 
And I think it's a good principle to be mindful of. I would agree with it. But friends, in this text, the silence is deafening. Seven days of no conversation whatsoever with Job and his friends. And when Job opens his mouth, there's, there's a shriek, there's a curse, there's a lament. And, and, and Eliphaz responds with a speech full of advice. What he doesn't do is take to find out more about Job's situation. There just doesn't seem to be any empathy or sympathy in these words. He's speaking kindly, but there's no, there's no consideration for that. There's no mention of, tell me about your children. There's no mention about, how is it with your wife? All right? There's no kind of genuine compassion and concern for what's going on with him. What we have here is Eliphaz just coming in and saying, I want to help, and I'm just going to now be theological. And friends, there's, there's a place for theology and suffering. Now, this is practical advice and counsel for us who are the counselors or who are receiving counsel. If you're, if you're the one who is going through something, hear this, you will have a tendency to see the word of God and theology through the lens of your suffering and will be tempted to somehow, you know how we have, you know, you go for an eye exam to kind of say, is it A or B, whatever. You kind of twist it a little bit to fit your situation. That's our temptation. We do that. We, we, we look at truth through the lens of our struggle. And we need people to come along and say, uh, let me kind of write that, correct it, so you can see clearly here. But the other side is sometimes when we come with counsel, we, we lack compassion, we lack a desire to understand, we lack uh, empathy, and we, we simply want to be theologically precise so that we're representing God. And when we hear something that's theologically amiss, we're like playing whack-a-mole. It's like, that was wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, let me tell you what's right. That's not going to help a person in that situation. Let's put it this way. The road to theological reflection comes by lovingly, gently, and sympathetically traveling down the path of compassion. We enter with compassion. And then, as God and as our wisdom dictates, we bring about the theology that helps the situation. My friends, as we just think about this text, two things. The wrong question, can a man be righteous before God, is found in chapter 4, verse 17. The right question is, can a man find God wonderful in all he does, even in suffering? Is your suffering changing the character of God, or does his character remain the same no matter what. Is he still marvelous and wonderful and great and majestic? To understand the book of Job, we must recognize the difference between those two questions. What is more important, theology or theophany? Theophany is simply a word that describes the appearance of God. What is more important, knowing about God or knowing God? Our suffering drives us to the place 
where we seek to know God. Or it drives us other places. Now, friends, Eliphaz is a, a man of good intentions, but he comes with counsel that is mixed with truth, a lot of truth, but mixed with error. There's a moralism that is present. There's a misuse of scripture. There's this conviction that Job has done something sinful that is a result which results in his calamity. But what Job truly needs is God, not just a right theology. Friends, may that be a help to us as we wrestle with the suffering and the counsel that we give. Lord, help us now to take these truths, to live our lives in such a way that you would be glorified. We ask in your name, amen.